The Edge of the World Art Studio is proud to present Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Danielle Lee. Artwork by Helen Rachel Lee. Music by Fish Zombie the Onions. And special thanks to Spooky the Cat for her contributions, fuzzy as they might be. Chapter 50. Halloween. 1864. October 31st. Carson City, Nevada. Orpheus stood on the roof of the saloon. It was becoming his favorite spot. Colin and Henry had been busy all weekend taking bets, and Orpheus found few places he could be at peace. He did not fool himself into thinking he was world famous, but he was famous enough in this corner of Nevada that he could not leave his hotel room without being stopped by some fan or another. He found it easier just to stay in his room. If he needed some fresh air, he would slip out the window and up onto the roof. He stretched his arms out, passed them in front of him, and then took a large step to the right. Every movement of his routine was practiced and perfect, and though the movements were slow, his muscles were pulled tight and stretched to their limits. Euricity sat on the roof of the dress shop across from the bank. He was waiting for Penelope. Saturday, she had just disappeared. They had been talking in the bar, and then, like a magic trick, she was just gone. He had been looking for her for the last two days. He spent the night in her apartment, but she never returned there. It didn't look like she had packed. Some of her things were still in the room. There was makeup and perfume still on the vanity, and in the closet her clothes still hung alongside the dress he had worn to sneak into the fort. The only thing he couldn't find, and what disturbed him the most, was her carpet bag. Euricity didn't know what to think. Had she been found out? If she had, he had faith she would not betray him. He had to believe that her plan was still in place. He checked the ammunition in his rifle, and once again leaned out over the edge of the roof so he could see the street and the bank. She'll be here. She'll bring the general. I know it, Euricity whispered to himself. But he was beginning to worry. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and then reopened them. That's when he saw Orpheus. It took him a moment to realize who it was. It's the Colorado kid, he thought. What is he doing? He had never seen anyone move like that before. He was stretching his legs, arms, and torso around like he was fighting an invisible opponent very slowly. Euricity tried not to stare, but it was hard not to wonder about this strange man. Orpheus came to the end of his routine, stopped, clapped his hands in front of him, and took a bow to no one. When he lifted his head, he saw Euricity sitting on the roof of the dress shop. He was holding a rifle and wearing a coat and hat that looked a lot like the soldiers he had seen, only it was gray. Orpheus held his hand up and waved, hello. Euricity brought the rifle around and aimed at Orpheus. He took his hand off the trigger and held it out, waving back, then held his hand flat and mimicked patting the ground. Get down, he whispered. Orpheus just looked at him strangely, not understanding head cocked to one side. Good God, the man is an idiot, Euricity said out loud as he once again peeked out to the street waiting for Penelope. 
when on the streets below he saw his father, Jonathan, dressed in the blood-stained Confederate uniform that had once belonged to him. The seams on the back and the arms had been ripped to accommodate his larger body. Eurycity had borrowed his father's uniform. If this was going to be the last act of the Reaper, he had thought, then he should do it in uniform so they knew who it was. Then they would throw the uniforms away or burn them. But now there was his father, Jonathan, dressed as him. Eurycity was beside himself. He wanted to yell out. He wanted to tell his father to run. But if he did that, it would give away his position. Jonathan tethered his horse to a post alongside the bank. He walked up to the entrance and pulled from his holsters two single-action army pistols. Eurycity couldn't find the one that had been his favorite, the one Jonathan had given him just before the fort. He had considered it good luck, but when he prepared this morning, it was missing. He had assumed his father had it, and he was right. The one in his holster now was an inferior Confederate pistol. It was a fine weapon, but the single-action army pistol had been modified. He could not remember the raid they had stolen it. There had been so many, and the pistol had just been one of hundreds. But whoever had owned it before had either been a master gunsmith, or had paid a lot of money to have it worked over by one. The internal workings had been rebuilt. The trigger pull was light, the hammer fell heavy, the latch inside must have been sanded down, and the spring replaced with something stronger. The barrel had been rifled. Spiral grooves cut on the inside, so that when the bullet left the gun, it spun, increasing its accuracy and distance. Weights had been set in the handle to change its balance. It was just more comfortable to hold and easier to aim. Eurycity was annoyed to find it missing. He assumed Jonathan had it, but he had considered it his. They had always shared a communal pool of rifles, pistols, and muskets, but that gun had belonged to him. Besides, his father had one of his own, just like it, but without the modifications. Jonathan stepped up to the front doors of the bank. He turned around and looked up at the roof. It only took him a second to find Eurycity peeking out at him. He smiled and then turned and walked into the bank. Eurycity ducked back down so he couldn't be seen. Damn it! What the fuck is going on? He thought. He looked across the street at Orpheus, still standing on the saloon's roof. Eurycity pointed at him, and then pointed down. Finally, Orpheus understood, and got down on his knees, hiding a bit, but he was still peeking out and watching. Eurycity heard the marching first. The cadence of steps, the clumping of hooves in time, the sound of an army on the move. He peeked out. They were here, the army and the cavalry. He tried to count, but they began to fill the street in front of the bank. It was surrounded. They had been waiting, he thought. He'd been betrayed. Lucy. She couldn't have. She wouldn't have. He quickly looked again. Among them, there were captains and lieutenants. He saw a colonel and the sheriff and his deputies, but no generals. The general had not come. Normally he would run, but his father was in there. He sat back down. All right. You're about to start a game. How many enemies are there? He asked himself. More than can be counted, he replied. How many bullets do you have? 
He thought for a moment. Seven in the rifle, six in my pistol, twelve on my belt. That's twenty-five altogether. Can you kill your enemies before they kill you? No. Then this is a game you can't win. You have to run. He told himself. I can't run. He answered. Then you will die. He responded. Then I will die. He admitted. Looking across the street at Orpheus, he remembered the strange man playing the piano. He wished somehow he could hear it again. Oh well. I hope he wins his fight. Eurystice heard the gunshots from inside the bank first. He peeked out over the roof to see rows of soldiers lift their rifles pointed at the doors when they were kicked open. Almost every soldier fired at once. In moments, the street was filled with smoke. And from inside the smoke, he saw the silhouette of his father, pistol in each hand. He began to fire into the crowd. Eurystice picked up his rifle. He shot the colonel first, sniping him from his rooftop position. Then, ducking back down, he pumped the handle, loading the gun with practiced speed. He shot and killed the sheriff next. His father had taken cover behind the wall just inside the bank. He was firing through the window around the corners and out into the crowd of soldiers. Eurycity saw that several of them had fallen. He popped up once again with his rifle killing a captain. But one of his soldiers had seen him, and he saw the man look up. Eurycity pumped the rifle, and the man turned to aim at him. They fired almost simultaneously. Eurycity's shot rang true, killing the man. His shot hit the roof next to where Eurycity was resting his elbow. He ducked back down. Close, he thought. He risked peeking out again quickly one more time. He saw that the soldier's friend had brought his gun around and was pointing it at the roof. If he came out again, he would be killed. He began to crawl to a different position when the gunshots ended. The silence was deafening. Eurycity had known the sound of battle. He had lived through so many. Gunfire, yelling, shouts, and commands, and then silence. When it was over, there was always a moment of silence. He didn't want to look. He knew what he would see. Instead, he looked across the roof at Orpheus. He was there, the look of compassion in his eyes. Orpheus had seen Jonathan fall. He had come out from the bank, his pistols empty. He dropped them at his feet, and then crumpled to the floor like a broken doll as the gunfire and smoke billowed around him. After, there was silence. Whoever these men were, whatever it was they were trying to achieve, they had lost their battle. Many of the operas depicted great battles. Several of them were about old wars fought in China, but none of them compared to this. Help him. Orpheus heard someone say. He looked around to see where the voice had come from, but there was no one. He grabbed his satchel, hooking it over his shoulders. He slipped back down to the balcony of his room, through the window, out the door, and down the staircase. He had to help. He had to find the man on the roof. Eurycity let go of his rifle. He took off his hat and dropped it. He slipped off his coat and made his way to the other side of the roof, farthest from the bank. He held onto the ledge and lowered himself down. He let go and fell the short distance left. He checked the door on the back side of the shop. It was locked. 
Holding the knob, he pressed his foot against the wall and pulled the door open, breaking the lock. He went inside. The shop was full of fabric and dresses. The displays held every type of undergarments and overgarments, from elaborate ball gowns to simple prairie dresses. And it smelled like lavender. Crouching by the window in front was a man in a well-tailored suit, with a measuring tape around his neck. He looked up at Eurycity. Who are you? You can't be in here. I need your help, replied Eurycity. I'm not going to help you. There's nothing I can do for you. Get out of here. This is a woman's shop. I don't think you understand. I need your help. And you will help me, Eurycity insisted. The hell I will, the man replied. Then he saw the gun at Eurycity's hip. You're, you're one of the bank robbers. They're looking for you. I'm not going to help you. He's in here, the man yelled, and he began to run to the front door. Eurycity grabbed him by the collar of his shirt and pulled him down. He fell hard. His head hit the ground and bounced. I said, you're gonna fucking help me. I did not give you a choice. Eurycity checked the man to see if he was still alive. He was. But he was gonna have a hell of a headache when he finally came to. Eurycity looked around the dress shop. Son of a bitch. Not again, he said to himself. Orpheus searched the street around the dress shop across from the bank. There were soldiers everywhere in blue uniforms. They didn't seem organized anymore, just wandering around the streets with no real direction. A captain began to yell out orders, but he was obviously having trouble getting everyone back together again. All of them had blue uniforms. He could not find the man in gray. When he felt a tap on his shoulder, Orpheus turned and there before him stood Eurycity. Years later, they would reminisce about this meeting. Although Eurycity knew who Orpheus was, this was the first time Orpheus had ever spoken to Eurycity. But later, he would never admit what his first thought was. Dear God, this woman is tall. Orpheus wondered if Eurycity was wearing high heels under the blue dress. It was a simple light blue cotton dress, with white collar and cuffs, it didn't appear to have any of the more complicated structures that most women used. No corset, no crinoline. This was not a dress like the ones the painted cakes wore. And Eurycides' hair was covered by a white bonnet, so Orpheus could not see its length or color. You gonna fucking stare at me all day, or are you gonna help me? Asked Eurycide. I'm sorry, miss. I'm in a bit of a hurry. Orpheus replied as he looked around the street again, searching for the soldier in grey. What kind of piece of shit ignores a woman in distress? Didn't your mother teach you any manners? Asked Eurycity, as he hooked his arm into Orpheus's. I didn't have a mother, replied Orpheus. Well, I did, and I can tell you right now you didn't miss out on anything. They are overrated. Eurycity began to walk towards the bank, pulling Orpheus along as if they had been walking together. Orpheus began to study Eurycity's accent. He had encountered it before. It wasn't as common as others in the area, but he was certain someone had told him it was southern. This woman is from the south, thought Orpheus. I wonder if she knows the soldier in grey. The war had been explained to him, but he didn't understand much about it. As long as it remained in the south, then there wasn't much concern here in the west. He knew Edgar Allan Poe had been from the East. They were currently in the West, 
This girl was from the South. I wonder, shall I ever meet anyone from the North? He thought as his mind began to wander. Whatever I do, just fucking go with it. Euricity began to explain. I don't want any of these asshole Yankees getting the wrong idea. These damn blue, shit-stained motherfuckers get a whiff of a southern girl, and they have a tendency to forget that they are supposed to be gentlemen. Orpheus was unfazed by the casual profanity. Because of Colin, he just assumed that's how some Americans talked. In a way, he was right. Where the hell are you from, anyways? Euricity asked. The Far East? Orpheus replied, forgetting he was supposed to lie about it. The Far East? Euricity asked. How far? All the way. Well, fuck. That must have been quite a walk. Euricity laughed. I didn't walk. I took a boat. Orpheus replied. No shit. It was a joke. You don't spend much time in the company of women, do you? No, not really. Orpheus replied. He felt like somehow he still wasn't. Euricity didn't talk like any girl he had ever met before. He didn't move like a girl, and he watched everyone, like Henry did, while thinking up a scam. I know a joke, Orpheus added. All right, go ahead, what's your joke? Why was there a ghost in the outhouse? I don't know. Why was there a ghost in the outhouse? Euricity answered. Because he had to poop. Orpheus held out the O sound in the imitation of a ghost wail. Euricity stopped walking for a moment, looked down at Orpheus, and said, That is the worst joke I have ever heard in my entire life. I'm sorry? Would you like to hear a different one? No, absolutely not. Come on, I have to get going. Euricity once again pulled Orpheus forward, weaving through the soldiers, trying to get to the front of the bank. For the first time, he saw his father. They had pulled him more towards the center of the street, and folded his arms over his chest. He was gone. Euricity didn't understand why. He wasn't supposed to be here. There was no need for this. It was pointless. Pointless. This was her fault. He knew it was. There was no question. Penelope had betrayed him, and he would hunt her down. He would never forgive her for this. He would never let her rest until he found her. He would kill her. He would kill the general. He would kill every soldier who stood in his way. Stop there! A soldier yelled as he came towards them, with two other men behind him. Euricity reached for his pistol, but he wasn't wearing it. He left it in the dress shop. The problem with his disguise is that he had to go unarmed. He would raise too much suspicion carrying a weapon around in his hand. He stopped and then held on to Orpheus so he could not move either. You have to go around. We don't want anyone on the street, the soldier explained. Orpheus tried to turn around, but Euricity gripped him tighter, holding him in place. Oh, is there a problem? Orpheus asked, not sure what to do now. The bank has been robbed. That's... Terrible? I guess we'll have to go around? Orpheus said slowly as he once again tried to move. Euricity held so tight to his arm, Orpheus could feel his circulation being cut off. Euricity bent down and whispered to Orpheus, My horse is tied to the hitching post on the other side of the bank. 
I need to get it. His words were crisp and held a veiled threat. I'm sorry, sir, but my wife's horse is tied to the hitching post on the other side of the bank. If we could just retrieve it, we promise we'll be on our way, Orpheus explained. Married? thought Eurycity. You're going to have to wait. The soldier stood his ground. Eurycity's grip held Orpheus still. He was beginning to worry if he didn't do something, he was going to have permanent damage. Sir, I can see that there are unfortunate circumstances, and I want to be respectful of them. Orpheus switched his accent to a more northern cadence to match the man's. The problem is, my wife has to be back home to prepare supper and watch the children. We did not expect to be out this late in the morning, and we are concerned they may get into trouble if left unattended too long. Orpheus explained. Eurycity's grip loosened. Children, he thought. The kid lies like a con man. I may get out of here. If I do, I owe him one. How many children do you have? The soldier's voice seemed to soften. Orpheus knew his approach was working. We have three, he replied. What are their names? The soldier asked. Edgar. Eurycity risked speaking up. And the twins, Alan and Poe, Orpheus added. Your children's names are Edgar, Alan, Poe? Oh, yes. He's my favorite writer. Have you read his work? I have a collection of everything he's written. Okay, fine. Get your horse. The soldier turned to the men behind him. You two, escort them to their horse and be sure they leave. I don't want anyone standing around. We don't need an audience. After giving his commands, he walked away. Eurycity held on to Orpheus. His grip was softer, and they began to move again towards the bank. Orpheus glanced over at Jonathan laying on the street. Eurycity refused to look, afraid that if he saw it, he would begin to cry. There was no time for that. Emotions had no place in war. In war, you act. And if you want to feel bad about it, you do it later. As they walked past the doors of the bank, still open and full of bullet holes, Eurycity pretended to trip. He nearly pulled Orpheus down with him. Honey, are you okay? Asked Orpheus, as he tried to help Eurycity to his feet, when the cold barrel of a gun slipped into the front of his pants. Eurycity had found and picked up the single-action army pistol he considered his, the one he would one day give to Paris. Shh, Eurycity instructed quietly. She is stealing this gun. Is that why she wanted to do this? Is that why she just didn't go the other direction? Did she risk her life for this weapon? Orpheus wondered. Eurycity stepped in front of Orpheus so that the front of his pants could not be seen with the pistol sticking out. They walked the rest of the way to the horse. Eurycity still didn't see any way to take the gun out without being spotted. So he turned to Orpheus and began to kiss him. As he slipped the gun out of his pants and then dropped it into his satchel. Breaking their kiss, he leaned over and whispered, Keep that for me. I'll be back for it. Then untethered the horse and mounted. Jim, I will see you back at home. Good luck later. Give him hell. Eurycity said loud enough to be heard. He turned the horse and rode away. Orpheus was stunned. He had been lost in the kiss, and now he had no words. She knows who I am, he thought. How? Hey, mister, um, handsome? 
Do you think you really could beat the killer? Asked the soldier standing behind him. Orpheus turned around to see that behind the soldier on the side of the bank was a poster that read proudly, Monday, October 31st, in the new state of Nevada, the undefeated Aaron Killer Miller versus Handsome Jim, the undefeated Colorado Kid. And there was a picture of them both. Oh, yeah. Thought Orpheus. The fight. I forgot there for a moment. I hope she comes. This has been Helen of the Iron Horse, written by Paris Lee. Artwork by Helen Lee. Performed by Helen and Paris. All characters within are fictional and bear no intentional resemblance to anyone living or dead. Except, I guess, for Helen and Paris. See more of our work at edgeoftheworldart.com. If you would like to comment on the show or ask any question, please email us at helenoftheironhorse at gmail.com. The proceeding was made with the love and encouragement of all of our friends at the LA LGBT Center's Trans Lounge. Thank you.